that spake with me. I turned. What does that mean, I turned? Did it, does it simply mean John physically turned around and saw this voice that was speaking? That may be the case. But what I believe the Scripture is speaking of is a turning of the heart. A turning of the heart from voices. A turning of the heart from conditions in the earth. Many times our minds get caught up with voices that are around us. It can be the voices of the media. It can be the voices of our uh, doctrine or, or, or frame of belief that we're caught in. And we have to turn to see the voice of the Lord, to see Him, to hear Him. That's what I believe John did. His heart turned to see the Lord. He that had known the Lord, he that had walked the Lord, he that was known as the one that Jesus loved, had a turning of the heart to see Him. And, and look at what he saw. And being turned, he saw immediately seven golden candlesticks. And this, this is why... I've been in this series since, uh, I believe, September of last year. I've been in Revelation chapter 1 actually since July. But this is why, because all this seven golden candlesticks, what does it mean? We've been, we've been working to define what these descriptions mean. Every, every one of them, every one of them is pertinent to us as believers. Although John saw this in seven churches that were in Asia in his day, these are pertinent to the body of Christ today. Because Christ is in, is in his body, and this is an ongoing revelation of him and his people. That's, you, you know, the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ I believe a lot of people miss even what it starts. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what this book is dealing with. And, and frankly, what our entire Bible is dealing with is Jesus Christ revealed to and in a people. And this is what our salvation is all built upon is Christ revealed in us. And so... We go on, and in verse 13, in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet unto, likened to fine brass as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters." And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen the things which are, the things that shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven golden candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So here, he sets forth this book as a mystery. He, he, ha he gives us an idea that, that there's a lot of symbolism in the book. Seven stars, 
and seven golden candlesticks, seven stars, are the angels or ministers of the seven churches. Angels are defined in one place in your Bible as ministering spirits. And seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches. And so, so John is writing to the seven churches in Asia. And he's speaking of the Son of Man in detail in these churches. And today, I want us to pay attention to the first part of the description of the Son of Man. In verse 13, he says he was clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. So, the question I have is, what does that mean? He's clothed with a garment. What does it represent? The priesthood of Christ. The robe of righteousness. Being fully clothed with no nakedness. The garment of praise instead of being clothed upon with sackcloth and ashes or, or, or despair and sorrow. And my answer to what does it mean, it means all of those and, and way above and beyond. But I want us to focus on Jesus as our high priest. It, again, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. And, and this is, in my walk in the, with the Lord throughout my life, this has been one of the most impactful and most favorite things the Lord has dealt with me is His priesthood. He being the high priest of the church. That this priest is unlike any other priest that had ever been. He's greater than all priests. Glory to God. But Hebrews 8 verse 1 says, Now in the things which we are saying, the, the chief point is this, or this is the sum. We have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. And I want you to pay attention to the words, such a high priest. We have such a high priest. That should create in your heart the desire to define this high priest. We have to define Him. So, so what kind of high priest is He? With that being said, turn back in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to start in verse 11. And, we're, and keep in mind, this is the sum. We have such a high priest. It says in verse 11 of Hebrews 7, Now if there was perfection through the Levitical priesthood, for under it hath the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be reckoned after the order of Aaron? So what we see here set forth in, in verse 11 is that there was no perfection through the Levitical priesthood, and that through the Levitical priesthood, the people that were under it received the law, and this priesthood was reckoned after the order of Aaron. What does that mean, the order of Aaron? Hebrews 
10.3 tells us there was an annual reminder reminder of sins. People lived in the conscience of sin. Under the law, people lived in the conscience of sin. And, and my concern is that a lot of believers still live with the conscience of sin. They do not understand the work of their high priest. Their high priest is not Aaron. Glory to God. Aaron, although a great man, Moses a great man, all these great men of God, bless the Lord, our high priest far exceeds them. His, his offering far exceeds the offerings that came from Aaron. Glory to God. Jesus offered Himself. So, so our relationship with God is based upon the offering of Christ, Jesus the Lord Himself. That's, that's what our relationship is. It's based upon Jesus Christ the Lord, our high priest. And He's not after the order of Aaron, he didn't come from the lineage of Aaron. It is very important here in Hebrews that it points out that he didn't spring up after that lineage. He sprang up of the tribe of Judah. And he was reckoned to be a, a priest like Melchizedek. And when he's called a priest like Melchizedek you, Melchizedek, you and I have to go search that out. We have to go spend time in the Word and time with the Lord to understand what God is saying about a priest after the order of Melchizedek, king of Salem. And it, it, it means king of righteousness, king of priests. So he's, he's a king of, of righteousness and king of peace. And he served, what? Bread and wine. So Melchizedek was serving bread and wine and he was a king of righteousness. So his, his authority brings righteousness. Christ is in this order. And He's in the order of an endless life. Glory to God. What that means is His priesthood will never, ever end. So there's no ending of the priesthood of Christ. It has, it's unchangeable. And, and Hebrews 7 tells us that He's has an unchangeable priesthood. Now, now again, you have to ask yourself, what does this mean, it's unchangeable? Well, the lineage of Aaron continually changed because those priests would die. Those priests would rise up. They would die. They would, they would perform their tasks. They would light candles. They would lay out the showbread. They would deal with the incense. They would offer, slay and offer sacrifices unto the Lord. And, and one time a year the high priest would, would, would put on his special robes and he would offer the offering of atonement, the day of atonement, the, the continual uh, offerings of these animals that could never purify the conscience of man. When in fact, instead of purifying the conscience of man, there was a continual knowledge of sin. For under the law is the knowledge of sin. So man was continually under the law. He was continually bound up in the knowledge of sin. His conscience could not be freed. I, I, I actually, when I, when I look back at Adam and Eve in the garden, after they had sinned in the garden... And God clothed them with garments of flesh. Have you ever considered 
that they were clothed upon of the Lord with garments of flesh. You know, and you know, they clothed themselves uh, with, with leaves, but God clothed them with garments of flesh. And, and I see two things in this picture. One, first and foremost, is speaking of, of a day in which God was going to clothe us through the garment of Christ, through the offering of His body. Glory to God. But another one is, is the clothing, clothing with the flesh or the beast's nature. And I see this throughout even the natural Israel, even after the law and the commandments that, that the animal sacrifices that the priests were continually making kept the people in a reminder of their own selves, of their own inability, of their own situation, of their own status. And that status could never please God. So the conscience was forever bound up with the beast's nature and continually there was an offering of the beast for the nature of the beast. So the nature of the beast is in man. In fact, you could go back in your Bible and again study King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar was used of God. Although not a man of God, he was used of God pertaining to the children of Israel. And King Nebuchadnezzar being used of God at one point in his life found himself outside of his kingdom and he was eating the grass of the earth, laying in the earth, as a beast of the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar speaks of all humanity, not just that one man. He speaks of the beastly nature in man. And so, so there, down through time, until Christ came, man was captured in the nature of the beast. Glory to God. So back into Hebrews 7. Just reading a few script, verses of Scripture says in verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there arises another priest, who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life, for he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we've just spoken about this. This came through the oath of God, that Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in this was also a change of the law. I'm not going to get so much into this this morning, but I just want to point this out. It wasn't after the order of Aaron. It wasn't after the order of a carnal command. But it was after the power of an endless life. In Hebrews 9, flip to Hebrews 9, and verse 10, the Bible says that that under the first which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washing and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So, so the offerings, the law, and 
what the children of Israel was under was carnal ordinances, and it was imposed till the time of Reformation. But catch verse 11, but Christ being come, a high priest of good things to come. So he's the high priest of the good things that have now come to us and is being revealed in us by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, not of the old covenant building, not of the old covenant order, not of the old covenant priesthood. He's not of that building. Uh, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered into once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us, for the blood of bulls and of goats and of asters of heifers sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. How much more, look at this much more, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hallelujah. You are purged in your conscience. Are you aware of that? If you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, that you've been purged, that your conscience is purged, are you still aware of being an old man? What's your awareness? What are you, what's real to you? Is this real to you that Christ has purged us from dead works? Now these dead works, I, I, I want, I, I see a twofold meaning here. I see one meaning just the works that were under the law, the carnal ordinances imposed upon them, the, the offerings of the beasts, the lighting of the candles and all the rituals that were imposed upon them. I see that as dead works. Now those works were speaking of Christ. Those came of God. So, so I want to be careful there because all those works came right out of God. But they were not the living Word who is Christ. So, so those works couldn't bring life. Now also the dead works were the works of our flesh. The nature of Adam. The nature of the beast that we spoke of. Spoke of. So, so here... Christ has purged us from the nature of the beast to bring the awareness of Himself in you and I. Glory to God. Glory to God. See, He's the high priest of the good things to come, and He's not of that building, not of that tabernacle. Now now flip back for a moment to Hebrews, where we started, chapter 8. And it says, He is a minister of the sanctuary of, and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Okay, what does that mean? Again, consider it with the Lord. What does it mean He's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man? In, in John's Gospel, I believe it's in John chapter 3, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. He's speaking of His body. 
Now, those gathered around him was, was like, hey, Jesus, this building, this temple you're, you're, you're speaking of took 46 years to build. And they were talking about the natural temple. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians want to go back to that natural temple. But Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, in my resurrection, I'm going to raise it up in the power of the Spirit of God. And that's exactly what he did. And now Paul understood that, and he writes to the believers, you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them, walk in them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hebrews writes, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house you are. See, this is the, the house, this is the tabernacle that the Lord pitched and not man. He pitched the tabernacle that is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ Himself, built in the understanding of what He did at Calvary, of His death, burial, and resurrection. And see, this is what John sees in Revelation chapter 1. He sees the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to His foot, Gird about the paths with a golden girdle, with eyes as a flame of fire, whose face was like the sun, feet of burning brass, in the church, in the candlestick, in the house that the Lord pitched and not man. So that's why it's taken you, you know so long to go through the description that I I may could preach that for the rest of my life. <laughs> because Christ being defined in His church is what the Spirit of God wants to do. That's, that's even what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, when He would come, He's going to take a mind and show it to you. This is, I believe, in John 16. So He's going to take of me, of mine, of what I am, of the work I accomplished at Calvary, and He's going to show it to you. And He's not coming from the outside showing it to you. He's revealing it on the inside, glory to God. So He's bringing awareness to your soul that you that your conscience has been cleansed. That the cleansing power of the blood of Christ has been applied to your conscience. That you move from the works of the old man. You move from being dead in sin. And you come to the reality that you've been made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He now is your life, glory to God. And this reality, I'm telling you, love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit is filled up with the reality of Christ. I, I'm amazed so often in my walk with the Lord at, at, of the peace, of the joy, of the tranquility of God that He's ministered in my heart. And so often I, I, I speak to people in our local fellowship and I say, if I could, I would just reach out and touch people. I would fill them full of this tranquility and peace that God has brought into my heart. And He's brought it through the revelation of Jesus Christ in me. It is so glorious, so powerful, so wonderful. I want to give it to everybody. Hallelujah. I'm in love with this Jesus. I'm in love with what He's done. I'm in love with this high priest that atoned and, and did the final atonement, glory to God, and moved us from that old man, moved us from that condemnation, moved us from that nature, and has brought us into Himself. And, and the last thing I'll share with you this morning on this, it, back in Hebrews 8.1 again, it says that 
This high priest has sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. What does that mean? Again, what does it mean? He sat down. What does sitting down mean to you and I? Just, just in the natural, have you ever worked hard? Have you ever done, went out in your job or in your backyard and you're doing gardening, whatever, and you're really tired? And you finish your work. And you come in. And you sit down. You rest. That's what that means. He sat down. He's at rest. He, when He hung on Calvary's cross, He cried out, It is finished. In Hebrews, it speaks of Him that He hath come to do Thy will, O God, to take away the first that He may establish the second. Well, on Calvary's cross, as He hung there, He says, it is finished. So He sat down in a finished work. And that's what the Holy Spirit is ministering in, in our hearts, is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And He sat down at the right hand. What does the right hand mean? Well, if you'll go search your Bible in the Old Testament, the Bible speaks of the right hand of God. And it speaks of the right hand of God in relationship to His power and authority. Through His own arm, through His own right hand, God brought Israel out of the bondage of the Egyptians. His own power. Because Moses couldn't bring them out. Aaron couldn't bring them out. You know, that, that rod in Moses' hand, what did it speak of but the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what it was speaking of. So, so Moses' power was the living Christ. And, and all of what God did there with the Israelites when He brought them out of Egypt and, and through the, the Red Sea into the wilderness and ultimately into Canaan, Canaan's land, into the promised land, was through His own power, strength, and authority. And that's what it means when it says Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. That all power and authority, that when He raised from the dead, He says all power, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Glory to God. Have you ever heard that in your spirit, in your heart? All power, all authority is His. He robbed Him that had the power of death. Hebrews 2 says that is the devil. He destroyed Him. He robbed Him according to the translation you might look at. King James, I believe, says He destroyed Him that had the power of death. That is the devil. The devil no longer has the power of death over the believer. He that believeth on me, Jesus said, shall never die. Believest thou this? And you say, well, Brother Wayne, I see people die all the time. Well, these are just the physical shells that, that do come to the end, maybe of their useful purpose. But the life of Christ that is in you never dies. And you never die because your life is no longer this physical shell that you walk around in. Your life is Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul teaches to the church. He says, you're dead. 
In the book of Colossians, in your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you shall also appear with Him in glory. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. The glory of God is now come forth in His people to be known, to be expressed, to appear in you and I. This glorious life that we now have is Christ Himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You ever heard that? He says, I'm the life. He tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. We are raised up out of that old man of sin into His glorious life. See, He has all power and authority. He has all victory. His right hand has done valiantly. He has smashed the enemy in pieces. He has led us from the bondages of Egypt. He has led us from the bondages of sin. He has led us uh, if, through our own Red Sea into the promised land of Christ. Christ is that land flowing with milk and honey. Glory to God. He's led us into a place that out of our belly shall flow rivers of living water. We're in a place where Christ Himself is the very life that's within us. My God, this is so glorious. If we only see it, if we only hear it, if we only experience it by the Spirit of God, it's glorious. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb of God. His authority and power. Power over sickness. Power over disease. Power over all things. Glory to God. By His stripes we were healed. You could go on and on about the authority and the power of Him. He did the work as the high priest and offered up Himself to purge our conscience. And now is sitting at rest in the throne of the living God, in the finished work, with all power and authority in heaven and in earth. Glory to God. And we that are His need to go forth and minister the power and authority of Christ and release people from the bondages of death and bring them into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Hallelujah. Well, this will be all for this session this morning. I hope you come back next week. We're going to continue on looking at the Son of Man in the church. Blessings and glory to God.